Welcome to the Second Reading Podcast from the University of Texas at Austin. The Republicans were in the Democratic Party because there was only one party. So I tell people on a regular basis, there is still a land of opportunity in America. It's called Texas. The problem is these departures from the Constitution, they have become the norm. At what point must a female senator raise her hand or her voice to be recognized over the male colleagues in the room? And welcome back to the Second Reading Podcast for the week of November 1st. I'm Jim Henson, director of the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas at Austin. Joined again today by Josh Blank, research director for same Texas Politics Project. Uh, good morning, Josh, and welcome back to the studio. It's great to be in the studio. We are recording uh, at the University of Texas at Austin in the Liberal Arts Development Studio. Those fine folks have managed the podcast remotely, and I think we're we're dipping our foot back in in person. Back it's, to normal. It's kind of nice to be back in here and not have to worry about my wireless connection in my house. Yeah, no, I like this. I can look at you, and I, I well, actually, no, well, no, you no, know, I don't know if I like that much. Two out of three ain't bad, <laughs> yeah, I think the song okay. goes. So with the legislature gone and the, the calendar on 2021 running down, it's November. Yikes. Ugh. Yeah, the action in Texas politics is kind of dispersed right now. And it doesn't mean that things aren't going on by any stretch of the Dis- imagination. Dispersed is such a neutral. <laughs> well, but it is. Well, yes. Um, but, you know, I mean, I, I, I'm thinking about that in kind of, a, you know, an experiential way in yeah. the sense that, you know, once we had, you know, the regular five-month session. Mm-hmm. And then three special sessions back to back. You know, even even when the Democrats had broken quorum and fled to Washington D.C., it did seem like most of the action was in that yeah legislature or legislature adjacent, right? To the extent that the legislature was also so tied to the elections from day one that mm-hmm. you know now we don't have that that one place to look at, right? Right? I mean, you know, I'm not in the habit of getting up and saying, okay, like what's hitting the floor today. Where the hearings, you got to go and kind of look around right. a little bit more. Now um, people get to make their own noise however they want. Right. Which brings us to the topic of today. <laughs> um, so, you know, I want to start, I want to, you know, focus today on the sudden flurry of activity around, of all things, public school libraries. Oh, man. You know, we've been talking about this a lot. So, you know, the proximate trigger of this was... Of all people, Matt Krause. <laughs> How are you going to describe Matt Krause? Well, you know, we will describe him as the chair of the House Investigating Committee or Committee on Investigating, which right. I thought is also I hadn't really noticed. It's yeah, a funny, funny. It's a very active title for the committee. And he sent a letter to TEA, but, you know, to an, a, another thing that was weird about this, to an undisclosed BCC list of school districts. Surely random. Surely random, calling, you know, with an addendum. And the addendum to his email was a 16-page list of 800-plus books. 850, I believe. That uh, he thought needed to be sort of, he wanted information on, did the libraries have them? How much had they paid for them? Where in the school were they located? Were they in the library? I also wanted them to to search classrooms, which is an interesting technical, practical point we'll get to. And then also wanted the the districts to provide information about any other books that would cause anxiety. There was a there was a phrase, and I don't have it right in front of me. I used it in the mailing last yeah. week, but psychological distress, echoing some of the the language in the critical race theory so quote unquote bill to students based on sexuality, race, but there was also a reference to things being sexually explicit. 
So it's basically kind of a, you know, go on a snipe hunt in your library for sexually explicit books. And then as, as several reporters pointed out, and if you, I mean, I, you know, I would say I went through the, the list pretty closely because. Yeah, you would. I would. <laughs> yeah, um, a- you know, and, and when it comes to authors, I mean. Well, let's put it, th- we'll start with it this way. One of the, you know, some of the coverage, I think, of the Dallas Morning News, they went through the first 100 or 200 100. books on the list and said... 97, you know, I think, were yeah, written by women hy- or people of color. Right. And as you go through the list, there's clearly a lot of young... And again, you know, I don't have kids. I don't read young adult fiction. Sure. Um, but what seemed to me, and I did a little spot checking, to be a lot of young adult, be comfortable with yourself kinds of books... Several of them having to do with uh, LGBTQ sexuality, et cetera. So the proximate target here was pretty clear. But also, you know, some books, and there was a couple of books on the history of Roe v. Wade and abortion rights. Mm-hmm. Two books by Tanasi Coates. Right. Best-selling. Award-winning. Yes, award-winning, best-selling African-American author. Right. Um, and kind of my favorite was the William Styron book, which, you know— that, that's probably generate, which is interesting. Probably generational. It's almost like one of these libraries had a book, had a copy of the Confessions of Nat Turner, and somehow they got wind of it, and went, "Oh, we got to get that William Styron book too." You know, a book that has been, in retrospect, kind of criticized for writing about, you know, from a uh, about slavery and and a black perspective by a aged white author. Mm-hmm. A separate issue, but a funny presence on the on the list. I thought, sure. So the politics of this are, it's hard to not not to go straight to the politics, but I guess we should start by saying, okay, like, you know, what is this trigger? And what it triggers is then Greg Abbott gets in the game, right? Yeah, which is either, you know, shocking or completely unsurprising, depending on how you right. look at it, right? I mean, it certainly fits into, I mean, you know, and this is one of those things, it's, it's easy to sort of devolve into the, the pattern, right? We like patterns. And it's so simple here to just kind of look at this and say, oh, well, why would Greg Abbott get involved in this? And it's like, well, because... The truth is, you know, he's been doing this most of the session. It's been a, you know, the multiple sessions, right? It's been if there is some kind of issue on which, you know, any Republican can generate a sense of aggrievement among a Republican primary constituency, tell Greg Abbott about it because he's on board. And that seems to, you know, that, that's kind of the simple answer to this in some ways. I mean, to some, to some degree, you know, you could ignore Matt Krause, but I mean, it's hard also not to imagine that if Krause had gone along and kind of progressed with this and pushed it that you wouldn't hear something from from Don Huffines running for governor at some point soon. And that seems yeah. to be a pretty big trigger for Abbott. So that's a possibility. But it's also one of those things where, I mean, you know, it's odd in the sense that, you know, Kraus is sort of sitting here in a Republican primary field for attorney general with three other candidates who've run statewide already. He obviously hasn't. He's obviously... I mean, I, I mean, I wouldn't describe him as a backbencher because he's not a backbencher because he's on the majority party, but he's sort of straddled being yeah. in kind of the the sort of dissident group, which, you know, and also kind of. Yeah, I, I would say, yeah, he's gone in and out of prominence as he's shifted positions a little bit. I mean. Yeah, and he's but he's always been very I mean, the thing I'll say this about him. He's always been very I think he's been very thoughtful about those shifts in and out. I mean, he's positioned himself as a more reasonable member of the dissident group on a couple different occasions, I would say. Let's just say he he. He was. He's always been an interesting contrast with people like, say, 
former Representative Stickland and soon-to-be former Representative Biederman, for example. I would agree with that. And I think he's someone who also has shown a little bit of a sense. I mean, I think he, I think I remember a quote from him. I would have to go back and look, obviously, but I remember him saying something to the effect of, you know, at some point after some of the tactics of, you know, like the Freedom Caucus and a couple sessions ago, like, so he was one of the people who kind of went out and said, hey, you know, I can agree with the goals and not think the tactics are right. And right. so he's someone who's very, you know, is, is fairly aware of these things, maybe a little more so. Yes. M- milder in style, almost certainly. And so. So the politics of this seem, you know, again, like I say, it's it's hard to not just jump straight to the politics, but we should stop, pause for a second, unpack the thing itself and some of the responses, right? Because right. well, that's, I mean, that points to why the politics are a valid well, exactly. destination. It's why, it's why we jump to the to the politics so quickly. So, I mean, I kind of alluded to this in describing the letter a little bit. I mean, you know, there's a deeply impractical piece to this. Sure. You know, from the perspective of, you know, even if you are a school district who wants to comply, mm-hmm. this kind of thing rubs up against a lot of the norms near as I can tell of the library, prof- you know, librarian profession. Yeah. I would, yeah. People are not <laughs> Into comfortable sense. reporting information like this back to the authorities, shall we say. Well, well, and while Kress is empowered to make the request and there seems to be, you know, some degree to which they might be compelled. I don't think so. But, but not <laughs> but but not a very deep one from what, right. you know, people he have certainly, decided. He certainly is allowed to ask. Right. He's certainly, that's... There was a lot of consultation with lawyers that went on. Yeah, he's allowed to ask, but they are not compelled to... It's not a subpoena. The rest of the committee hasn't... Voted on Voted this. on. Seemingly so far, I haven't, there hasn't been much verbal confirmation from anyone on the committee that this is sort of a... A broad, you know, yeah, and, broadly and, and, backed and, and, and not surprisingly, from the Democrats, well, some yes. indications otherwise, right? Sure. <laughs> so, I mean, I, you know, there were some smaller districts that were kind of hustling up, you know, where it's probably easier to do this, and yeah. Sending signals, they would do what they could. The second part of the request was, you know, wildly subjective in terms of saying, "Oh, and do you have anything else like these 850 books?" Right. Right. <laughs> You know, that might make people uncomfortable. And as somebody very quickly said, well, you know, you know, everybody's made uncomfortable by something (laughs) (laughs) at some, you know, basic logical level. I mean, it's almost absurd to strip that much context out of it. But it's also fair to, I think, take the perspective of, you know, hey, look, I'm just a person like working in a school district trying to figure out like, you know, how to, what to do about this in a way that doesn't put me on some kind of hot seat. Well, and it's odd because I mean, this goes, and this is the other thing too, which is the request goes against kind of flies in the face of kind of the immediate context of what was going on in the few weeks leading up to this, right? It's hard not to look at the requests in the context of the critical race theory bill on the one hand, which is, you know, essentially, you know, which is certainly targeted at uh, the kinds of discussions and the kinds of materials in schools. You know, it's certainly hard not to look at it in the context of the transgender student athlete, bill that made it out of the final session of the legislature. So it's hard not to look at that way. And then, but then sort of that, that all happened. And then you had sort of in Carroll ISD in Southlake, you had this, an administrator talking about having to provide both perspectives on the Holocaust. And that's a, you know, that's a black eye for everybody. No, no, no legislator wants that to be sort of seen as like what this bill is doing. Yeah. And so, that, that that's what they wanted. <laughs> So then you've you got, think, anyway. yeah, well, and the, but the thing is in the few, you know, in the, I would say in the week after that, they were trying to clarify. They were saying, whoa, 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 this is about social studies classes. We're not banning books. We, you know, we're not yeah. talking, you know, you know, like there's a, you know, some ISD that canceled, you know, the student government, you know, thing. They're like, whoa, right. you don't need to, you know, or model UN or something it's like, well, let's slow down. Yeah. So there's a lot of clarifying, but obviously, you know, again, you kind of look at this in the context of all that, the fact that there was a lot of trying to clarification going on from, you know, Republicans who passed this bill on the one hand. 
you had the fact that, you know, Krauss is kind of doing this solo on the other, and he's also running for attorney general in a race where, you know, trying to, like most races, is going to see who's the most conservative. Right. And this is him putting a flag down. But yeah. that doesn't necessarily speak to why, to sort of Abbott's version of it, which was also kind of curious, right? Well, I mean, you know, I think the way you laid it out is, you know, we don't really have to, is pretty straightforward. I mean, you know, anybody who is, as you say, planting a flag or, you know, trying to stake out some territory on the far right of any race. Right. That gets any kind of media attention, you know, is going to have a demonstration effect right. up and down the ticket. That's like you said, I was both surprised and not surprised when the governor came out Monday and, and jumped on the bandwagon pretty quickly with a letter, as you were pointing out, to of all people, like to the Association of School Boards well, at Tasbo. It's, it's, like, it's as if the Republican government of Texas for the last two plus decades doesn't have any control over the school system, which it funds and creates regulations yeah. for. So, I mean, that's the sort of funny thing, I think, to about the fact that Abbott's letter went to Tasbo and not Mike Morath of the TEA, if this was really... Well, and it's and it's hard not to, you know, look at those things. And, and you take the fact that Krauss has nominal but not really legal authority. I mean, he, as you say, he can make the request, but compliance, as we're already beginning to see, yeah. you know, both Dallas and Austin have kind of studiously said they're not going to do this. And, you know, others are probably sending, you know, more subtle messages or, or just hiding behind or, you know, riding those coattails and hoping this all goes away. Because after all, he won't be chairman of the committee next time, yeah. right? Because he'll be gone. Right. So, you know, you can wait this out. But there's something so purely gestural about it mm-hmm. that is, on one hand, I feel naive to be kind of struck by it, but I'm struck by it anyway. And I'm struck by it. To, I mean, you know, look, I mean, you know, as you said, we should just get that done. I mean, the politics of this are straightforward. You look at public opinion on support for limiting, you know, for the kind of, for the Again, I hate to call it that, the so-called CRT bill. In other words, you know, placing limitations on what's taught and how in some vague, and as we're seeing, as you were sort of laying out, hard to understand, hard to implement way. Right. Um, which, you know, I, it's hard not to feel like people just didn't think about it very much in terms of implementation. Well, and also you have people who are actively confusing the situation. Yeah, and, and it was pointed out that this was going to be a problem, and people were like, yeah, whatever. Right. No, we're not doing that, and it turns out, you know, you didn't really know that. Right. But sure, you know, if you look at that, 61% of conservatives strongly supported that legislation in our June poll. 68% of strong conservatives uh, approved it. If you look then at the at the intersection, we talked about all the material. I think you can't separate this from, you know, the issues of sexuality and identity. They're at play here. Even stronger... Uh, conservative and, and strong conservative support for the trans for the ban on transgender particip- uh, people's participation in sports, mm-hmm. you know that that was even in the eighties and nineties. So you know, I mean, duh. <laughs> At right. some level, I mean, bracketing all the ethical issues and a lot of other things that are you know we'll unpack here. The politics are there, but big picture, it's really. It's a discomforting thing. I mean, you know, you were talking before you went on about our own professional cultural profile sensitivities mm-hmm. to this, which sure. is fair. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, I mean, you, you know, know, I, you know, we both have PhDs. We're academics. We're everything. We're all the worst things you could think about us. But it also means that, you know, when you start talking about like, you know, what's what looks like is heading towards a book ban. 
you know, and I mean, you know, it's kind of hard for me not to be a little squeamish about it. I mean, I think, you know, as, as a, you know, on another level, there's part of me that wonders, you know, is Matt Krause's first campaign event going to be a book burning? Like, what are we, what are we doing right. here? But the other thing about it, I mean, just from a more general... And the hyperbole of, I'm, you know, and I thought the same thing, right? And yeah. as you well know, I, you know... Yeah, I restrained I was really, myself. I was, I was really, the, you know, ready to swing for the fences this is a podcast, on this, though. you know. Um, but, but, you know... Shrug but, emoji. I mean, how, you know, how are you supposed to respond to something but, like this that is both, you know, so illiberal mm-hmm. in the classic liberal sense yeah. of the word... And so clearly targeted in terms of race and sexual identity. Well, there's two things about that, right? I mean, I think one is that there's just the fact of well, there's three things actually. One, I would actually say this is one of the most conservative things I've seen the legislature do, and it's actually hidden in the public opinion. And when I say conservative, I mean like in a sort of a traditional conservative. I mean, we've been we've been talking about this all session, and you kind of watching all this, and you say, what does it mean to be a conservative in Texas in 2021 right now, as we spend you know billions of dollars on on a border wall and kind of like things like that that sort of seem odd, you know? But you know, I think there's a couple there's a couple things that fall out of this to me that are just sort of striking. I mean, one I would say is the fact that. Uh, you know, it's another example of the erosion in institutions. Like, I mean, if you think about the fact that public schools generally and historically have been kind of cornerstones of communities and we've pulled on, you know, sort of public schools and public school teachers in the past, they're extremely highly evaluated. And this is just another example of another group of people we apparently can't trust. Yeah. You know, we can't trust them to teach the kids. We can't trust the librarians to, you know, put the books in the schools. And the other thing is, you know, we can't even trust the kids to like maybe read a book and like decide whether you know, it, right. it affects them or not, right? Start a book and decide they, you know, it's not for them. I know. I mean, there's part of me that just as a parent, it's like, boy, would it were the case that, you know, <laughs> every book in the library at the public school was being read by all the kids and they were all like really internalizing and thinking about it. Like that's a, that's not a problem. That Instead Texas... of in there getting kind of stuck together. The yeah. <laughs> well, okay. Okay. <laughs> that's not a problem that Texas is having. But then, you know, there's another piece of this, which is, you know, I mean, this is just such a, it's a, there's just a basic policy, which this is just such a good wedge issue right now. And it speaks to what makes this conservative in some ways, right? So you brought up, you know, the support for the critical race theory bill, the support for transgender students. On the transgender students, you know, requiring transgender students to participate on the sports teams that match their gender at birth. Right. That had the uh, support of 86% of Republicans. Okay. When, but the thing, you know, you have to take a step back here, right? And say, well, so wait a minute. And so it only had the support of 32% of Democrats, uh, which is still a lot a of, third de- of Democrats. It's a third of Democrats. That's what makes it a wedge issue. You have 50% of Democrats opposed, 32% of Democrats in favor of that. Critical race theory bill, you're still going to see a, you know, a significant minority of Democrats in favor of it. When we ask about discrimination against transgender people, 73% of Democrats say that this was back last year, right. that the transgender people face a lot of discrimination compared to 14% of Republicans. So this is not to say that Democrats in Texas have like abandoned, you know, sort of the coalition, if you will, right? Mm-hmm. Ultimately, Democrats see a lot of discrimination in society. They see discrimination in society against historically discriminated against groups. But what I think, you know, you're seeing here, and this is what I think is so, you know, smart about this on one level is the fact that how we uh, as a society address these things, that's a big open question that, you know, we're kind of rushing headlong into and it's pretty uneven. I mean, just say, you know, if you think about this and I think, you know, we've talked about this before, the idea of, you know, like, you know, you imagine the HR person, you know, you imagine how if anyone is listening to this has ever dealt with HR people, they're uneven. Do you want that person generally to be doing like the critical race theory discussion at your company. And we are not casting aspersions on the HR profession no, per our, se. No, not the profession, nobody that I've worked with personally. But 
that's a pretty big ask for people on a conversation that, you know, I think we're all just starting to have as a society really openly. But what it means is you have all these, you know, you either had these recorded conference calls of some, you know, untrained HR prefer, you know, professional stepping in it on yeah. some kind of tough issue, or you have, you know, teachers doing their best in their classrooms who then send home an assignment, have them read a book that, you know, maybe we need to think about now. You know, if you look at it that way, you'd say, you know, it's a pretty conservative position to say, hey, let's take a pause on this and like have some more discussion. That's not what they're saying. But ultimately what they're, well, they're getting saying, send me a list of the books. Yeah. Well, they're saying, let's take a pause on all of this because yeah. we don't want any of these discussions to take place. But I think the point is what they're exploiting is the fact that that is not an unattractive position to a significant minority of Democrats right now who are still trying to figure out what they think right. about a lot of these issues. And especially not just what they think about these issues. I think they have a lot of commitments to these issues. But then how do you talk about it to an eight year old? Yeah. How do you talk about it to a 16 year old? And so there's a there's a, there's a there's a space there to exploit where, you know, if Democrats kind of run so far ahead into like, OK, what are we going to do to be the most woke, to be the most anti-racist, to be the most welcoming of different gender identities and groups? Well, you know, that's great for liberal, you know, honestly, I'm going to be honest, adults. liberal, well, not, not that, liberal white Democratic adults. Yeah. But amongst the rest of, you know, I would say non-Democrats, but also a lot of black and Hispanic Democrats who make up a majority of the Democrats in the state, they yeah. hold less liberal views on these issues. And so this is a, a key point to exploit. So it's so the fact is, on the one hand, it's sort of, you know, not surprising that Abbott jumped in on it after Krauss did it because Abbott's kind of been happy to jump in on most any issue. Well, and it's good, good for him on both sides. But it's good for him on both sides. And we're seeing that, you know, I mean, I think we're seeing... You know, some of that in the, in the big national conversation right now as we're recording this, it's election day in Virginia and New Jersey, mm -hmm. big discussion of public education, how parents are responding to curriculum and things happening in the schools in Virginia right. that's gotten, you know, this is probably being a little too dramatic and we don't know how it's going to turn out. But it seems like, you know, one possible narrative here is that in his handling of the issue, the Democratic candidate, the former governor, Terry McAuliffe, maybe snatching victor defeat from the draws of victory by being, you know, sort of perhaps not as deft on this issue as he might have. Now, a lot of other things going on in that race. Yeah. A lot of things structurally going on in terms of where we are politically. But, um, and I'm sure the McAuliffe people, I, I don't have to be sure because you can read it pretty easily or, you know, can find other sources of their problems in in the Biden administration and the Democrat, congressional Democrats, et cetera. But there's no, but there's no you know, there's no debate that that issue has risen and become a major rallying point for Youngkin, the, the, yeah, and it's the Republican candidate in that race. It's, you know, and just to restate it simply, you know, it's an issue that, you know, there's no confusion or differentiation among Republican voters about where they place themselves on these social issues, right. these social questions. Amongst Democrats, it's a lot more complicated. It becomes especially complicated in the suburbs that Democrats and Republicans are fighting over where, you know, basically you have mm. a bunch of parents who are figuring this out and they're this is, you know, they're sending their kids to school and trying to see where they stand on this. So it divides those, that group. The rural part of the state, you know, that's, again, overwhelmingly Republican. Again, there's no confusion about how they feel about this. Right. And then you go into the urban centers that are maybe more diverse. And honestly, you have less liberal Democrats in a lot of cases. If you're talking about Democrats of color, again, make up a majority of the party. So it's all very, you know, mechanical and sensible. At the same time, to go back to where we were saying, it's like, so we just don't trust public schools anymore. Yeah, I mean, that's I mean, kind of the consequence of it is pretty, you know, dramatic. You know, for a long time in Texas, as long as I've been here, which is a long time. I'd, I'd vouch for that. You know, the curriculum 
in the public schools has been a recurring point of conflict. I mean, it was a it was an early beachhead for you know, what we can think of broadly as the sort of social conservative movement in the wake of Ronald Reagan, right. et cetera, the kind of modern social conservative movement in the United States. And it seemed like it had kind of subsided a little bit for a while. You know, I mean, for I mean, for a while it was, you know, the State Board of Education was ground right. zero for curriculum. And, it, you know, it would go away for maybe a year or so, and then it would come back, different books would cycle through. And there was just a constant I mean, it was just like the 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 focus of this fight, particularly during the during the two thousands and early twenty tens, and it does you know it puts me in a mind of my old structural self. In yeah, the, you know, the public education system is ground zero for socialization and for right, you know, how citizens are created, and I think that that's not lost on either you know progressives or conservatives. And I think we're just we're obviously in for another big round of that because if you step back, I mean, yeah, we've been we've been talking about fights. I mean, not even in the abstract in the education system. I mean, we've been talking about literal physical fights on the grounds of schools for the right. last six eight months now. Right over masks and yeah over that, over so. the COVID measures and and masks and vaccinations and and openings and closings and right. the terms of all that. You know, and it's almost as if we've organically come back to the point where, you know, if we're going to have a very ideologically polarized political system and we're going to have political leaders and entrepreneurs who realize that and are incentivized to stoke that conflict, I think we're in for a, a lot of this coming up. Yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, you know, that I mean, that argument is very convincing for imagining, you know, the next session, a pretty big focus on like the 1836 project in Texas. Right? Again, right. Again. Oh, yeah, right. I mean, right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah, not, the 1836 not, thing. Right. right exactly. Which is which exactly speaks to that. Right. I mean, yeah. that's the idea here is that, you know, well, if we're going to be shaping, you know, young Texans. Right. We're going to do it this way. Well, and there's, you know, and, you know, I mean, I, you know, it puts me in mind we're going to need to probably do some polling on this. I mean, another thing I pulled for this conversation was simply, the, you know, the approve, disapprove of. The state leadership's handling of K through twelve public ed in the mm-hmm. last session, and you know it was pretty mediocre. Yeah, you know twenty seven. You know they were underwater. Twenty seven approved, thirty percent disapprove overall. So th- you know three points in the negative, and a lot of people kind of keeping their powder dry on this. So it was a lot of neither approved nor disapproved. Now, you know Republicans were forty two sixteen, Democrats were fourteen forty six. But I think that tells you that, you know, the thing that people were hanging it on when we were in the field in June was not funding because they weren't really talking about that. It was even at that point, probably not as much the COVID stuff. Some of that was at play, but it was the end of the school year. That was before the Delta surge. Right. Um, What was on the table were the transgender measures and the critical race theory stuff. And so, you know, the, you know. Forgive me, you know, public school curriculum is a site of ideological struggle is, you know, there's more of that in our future coming up. Yeah. Yeah. I think that sounds exactly right. I mean, the sort of theme that I take away from all this, it's sort of interesting and it speaks to this sort of cultural, I don't know if a cultural shift, it's sort of, I mean, it's been a trajectory and a trend over time in terms of the lack of trust that people have towards each other. But like to the extent to which now, you know the state is either extending trust or not to individuals, right? And you think about it, it's like we don't trust public school teachers. We don't trust the people who, like, volunteer their time to administer elections. We definitely trust everybody to have a gun. 
And we definitely trust everybody to enforce an abortion ban. Well, right? and then, you know, and then, you know, you have to think, OK, so if you're telling us we can't trust them, who are you telling Texans you should trust? Well, yeah, but see, this is what's great, though. This is perfect because this is actually it comes actually because an interesting back end around argument for charter schools and for, pub, you know, for right. school choice and for homeschooling and whatever. Well, and we saw and we saw a little resurgence of that during covid. Mm hmm. And I think all of that has just been more roiled up now. And I, it's hard to see the temperature being turned down again as long as there are incentives for... Of which of which there are many. <laughs> yes. So so here we go. I think well, that will draw to a close. I want to uh, flag for people that listening, you know, spoiler alert, we'll have new polling data soon. Keep an eye out in the Texas Tribune and on our website. Um, that is, is looming very soon, depending on when you listen to this. Um, and there will be lots of interesting stuff in that poll. So uh, thanks to Josh for being here. Thanks again to our crew in the Liberal Arts Development Studio. Thanks to you for listening. Uh, find us at texaspolitics.utexas.edu. Stay safe and be well. The Second Reading Podcast is a production of the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas at Austin. 